Hello, everyone. You're listening to another exciting episode of the New Discourses podcast. I'm James Lindsay, and I'm going to start right off by reading to you from the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education to bring up what I think is a very important point to understand that kind of goes in the vein of my earlier very popular podcast, Communism Doesn't Know How. Just to break right into it. They write, traditional mainstream approaches to education tend to imagine the history of policy as a series of incremental steps leading gradually toward improved attainments and ever greater degrees of equity and social inclusion. Critical perspectives, however, view policy very differently. CRT views policy not as a mechanism that delivers progressively greater degrees of equity, but a process that is shaped by the interests of the dominant white population. A situation where genuine progress is won through political protest and where apparent gains are quickly cut back. So that's a really interesting little uh, paragraph. Obviously, we're setting aside the sarcasm because it's not the point today that there is a book called The Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education. And yet, to this day, people defending the fact that critical race theory is all throughout our education are telling us that critical race theory is not in our education. The point, however, isn't this blatant uh, distortion. It's not even, by the way, hypocrisy. It's not even, it's a distortion. It is an outright lie so that they can keep doing what they're doing, which is to keep critical race theory in the schools so that they can generate a race-based red guard so that they can continue to tear apart our society. Basically, they want to be able to create the conditions so that we will have another summer of 2020 with all the young people taking the side of whatever protest eventually shows up, and they have to ingrain these racist ideas into them, these racial critical ideas into them. They have to awaken a racial critical consciousness in the children so that they are ready to go berserk again and to defend people going berserk again and to take the side of people going berserk again when uh, another incident that's going to be fruitful for them comes along, like the death of George Floyd. But that's not the point. We're not talking about this approach, although we kind of are. What we're talking about, what I want to talk about in this episode, which I've going to title Paranoia and Protest, is in fact that there's a clear um, juxtaposition, or clear comparison, I should say, or contrasting between traditional mainstream approaches to whatever and critical perspectives. And, um, you know, we can say whatever we want about the beginning of this, where they say that, you know, traditional mainstream approaches are always looking for greater degrees of equity and social inclusion. Um, I don't think they are actually looking for greater degrees of equity. Uh, I think equity is something that has pretty stark limits, actually, in traditional mainstream approaches to improving society, because people generally believe that we should maybe do something to make up for uh, genuine disparate access, when whether that's due to some physical difference like a handicap or a disability, whether that's due to actual discrimination. People, I think, in traditional mainstream approaches to societal reform, if you will, and societal inclusion, if you want, I think people generally agree that there's a limit, that when there is actually an unjust, unjust barrier, that we might try to do something about it. Ideally, we would just remove the barriers. But with the case of something like a physical barrier, like an actual disability that, that challenges access, there's only so much you can do. So some people, so, so we tend to be pretty open to the idea of something like an equity program where we put extra resources into 
improving access for people who are limited in some serious way. So it's not this endless greater thing that they put here. That, that there's this ever, what do they say? Uh, history of policy is a series of incremental steps leading gradually toward improvement pains and ever greater degrees of equity. No, I don't think so. Unless by equity we actually mean equality of access, which it doesn't mean. It means equality of outcome. It means uh, parity against uh, current demographics and, and historical and, and making up for historical injustices. Redistribution on the grandest scale. H. George Fredrickson, the father of social equity theory, wrote in a paper in 1990-ish uh, describing his seminal paper on the issue in 1968 that the difference is actually H. George Fredrickson records this and it actually was put into the in, in, into actual administrative policy, if I recall the paper correctly. And it was described that equality means that citizens A and B are equal. Equity means adjusting shares so that citizens A and B are made equal. It's a very different thing. That aside, traditional perspectives they are pointing out use incremental steps to gradually improve conditions. And they contrast this with critical perspectives. And how do they characterize critical perspectives? First, they put that it's all power dynamics. Critical perspectives view policy very differently. CRT views policy not as a mechanism that delivers progressively greater degrees of equity, but a process that is shaped by the interests of of the dominant white population. So immediately there's this paranoia. This, this is why the, this episode is going to be called paranoia and protest. There's this paranoia. There's this conspiracy theory that dominant white population or the bourgeoisie, if it were communism before this is erecting a system to purposefully exclude others. So there's a paranoia at the heart of the critical perspective, but what, what's the protest part? They say a situation where genuine progress, this is a critical perspective, let this sink in. A situation where genuine progress is won through political protest and where apparent gains are quickly cut back. So what I want to point out is that the, their method, the critical perspective, is protest. Their, their motivation is paranoia and their method is protest. That's all they have, paranoia and protest. They believe that the only way genuine progress happens is through protest against the power. And my goal with this episode of the podcast is going to be to really put legs under this mindset for you to see that this is something that they've espoused for at least half a century. And I'm not going to go all the way back to Marx and the early thinkers of the 1920s, like Lukács and Gramsci, where this has been rife throughout communist thinking all along. What I really want to point out is that this is this is the heart of what's going on with communism doesn't know how. If you remember that episode of the podcast where I talk about um, that they don't actually know they don't know how to achieve their goal, whether that goal is communism, that's Marx old school vulgar Marxism, or whether that goal is racial justice, that's critical race theory, whether that goal is gender justice or climate justice, or I, we can make up vaccine justice or health justice. Health justice is actually real. It's the continuation of health equity, which is a program that's already being put into play uh, across the country. I call this medical lysenkoism, as you should as well. That's another episode of the podcast you shouldn't miss. We're not going to get distracted here. What I'm saying is the only thing that these critical perspectives bring to the table is protest, which is disrupt, dismantle, and destroy. They don't bring any building. And this creates a 
weird circumstance because all they are is destructive, but they're very rhetorically savvy. They're very good at creating the appearance that there's something else going on that's not just destruction. And by tapping into that, um, they're able to kind of trick people, but people see through it at the same time. So they also perceive throughout their literature, and they, they speak into their literature all the time about a certain coming backlash, that people are going to backlash against this, that, that when they try to implement it, one of the main things in their literature, you think this is an academic theory, you think this is a way of describing the world, but they say actually, in fact, though, is that what you will, will happen when you apply this is that you will encounter resistance. And so much of their literature is devoted to overcoming resistance that you can tell that this is an activist movement. Just to kind of put a fine point, though, on the idea that this really is, you know, a linguistic construction, which is another set of podcasts that I've already done. And you, you definitely need to go catch up on everything I've said if you haven't heard this so far. But we're going to turn to Marcuse again in a work that I haven't quoted from much. I've only quoted from it very sparsely, in fact, which is Counter-Revolution and Revolt, which he wrote in 1972, um, more or less after the radicalism that he inspired in the late 60s had started to fall apart. In 68, you can almost, in 69, when he wrote Essay on Liberation, 68 is when he wrote the footnote to Repressive Tolerance. You can almost sense a euphoria, like his movement is taking off, it's going to succeed, it's already on the track. And in 72, in Counter-Revolution and Revolt, he realizes that the normal society has pushed back and things aren't going to go the way he wants and he's flipping out a little bit. It's an interesting piece, but in there, he actually says, the radical refusal, the protest appears in the way in which words are grouped and regrouped, freed from their familiar use and abuse. So I'll pause before I read some more of this quote. This is exactly what I was talking about in the essay I wrote last year around Christmas and the podcast that followed about pseudo-realities, about constructing linguistic pseudo-realities to get people to play in. Here Marcuse is explicitly saying it in Counter-Revolution and Revolt, 1972. Um, the essay, I think Joseph Piper's essay on pseudo-realities was, was uh, abusive language, abuse of power is what that's called, was published in 71, if I'm not mistaken. So he was looking at what these people were doing in the 60s, and, and Piper was, and saying, look at this, they're abusing language on purpose. And here in 72, we have, we have uh, Marcusa explicitly saying that the radical refusal, the protest appears in the way words are grouped and regrouped, freed from their familiar use and abuse, because they believe that the power, the, by this point, by the way, by the late 60s, early 70s, you actually have into critical theory creeping postmodern ideas. I don't know how much crossover there was between the two sets of thinkers. Um, not zero, I would imagine. Uh, but nevertheless, what you have is this awakening. I mean, Adorno wrote in 66 a thing called negative dialectic that's very, very similar in many respects, to, to Derrida's deconstruction. So you have this kind of coalescing on a new way of thinking about knowledge and ideas and language, even emerging in the critical theorists. And their belief was that the language is already automatically always being abused in order to, um, to, to maintain power. And this is, in a sense, really the heart of postmodern thought as well. So critical theorists believed that they had to use specialized language and they had to free words from their familiar use and abuse in order to do something different. Now, that wasn't what I wanted to get to. Let me read the whole quote this time. The radical refusal, the protest, appears in the way in which words are grouped and regrouped, freed from their familiar use and abuse. Alchemy of the word, the image, the sound, creation of another reality out of the existing one. 
permanent imaginary revolution, emergence of a second history within the historical continuum, permanent aesthetic subversion. This is the way of art. So this this is everything I've been saying, of course. Um, people like to think I'm crazy. Alchemy of the word. What was my podcast, my long podcast about Hegel about? Alchemy, about how this is an alchemical approach. I've said this again and again and again in the episodes since then where I talk about Marcuse's work that he says, for example, as we'll get to later in this episode again, because it's so important that the seeds of the, of the utopia are contained within this imperfect present. And if we can just alchemically free them, then we can have a different reality. And that's exactly what he says here. Alchemy of the word, the image, the sound, creation of another reality out of the existing one permanent imaginary revolution, emergence of a second history, 1619 project. So this is all they have to offer is what I really wanted to say. And people may not catch on to it exactly, but they perceive it and people don't want it. And so you end up with this weird feedback loop in their literature where they know people don't want this. And if you're Robin D'Angelo and you go teach this garbage to people, they don't like it. Going back to the 1950s, I recently learned they were attempting to do diversity experiments on people and people didn't like it. And overcoming resistance has been a major theme ever since. Uh, the whole of critical whiteness studies really arose to, to give people a white identity arose in the context of figuring out how to overcome resistance to critical approaches, critical theory approaches to identity based in race. And so because of this, they predict, again, with their, their paranoia, that there will be a backlash, but because their theory blinds them and limits them to their analysis so badly, because protest is all they have to bring to the table, people don't want it. The only way they can analyze that is that people are resisting something good because they have entrenched uh, benefit or complicity or whatever that they don't want to give up. They have privilege that they don't want to lose. And so they have a completely perfect self-satisfying spiral of not being able to understand what's happening around them as they go on and alienate people and piss people off and ruin things. And again, this just becomes a greater program of despair. But it also becomes, as they've learned over 50 years of trying to apply this, 50-something years, the first real diversity program began in 1970, as it turns out, um, as they've, they've spent years, decades applying this, they've started to learn ways to turn it into basically a cult indoctrination. And I'll make the case. I have made the case that that's what's going on. As far as this being all they have to offer, disrupt, dismantle, and destroy, let me just read to you from the 2020 Office of Equity Task Force final proposal to the governor of the state of Washington. If you don't know the backstory on that, Jay Inslee at some point, I think in 18, 2018, commissioned an equity task force to bring an office of equity to the state of Washington. What a nightmare. In January of 2020, I saw a video. Luckily, Benjamin Boyce captured what was going on and exposed this, where this equity task force was meeting. And it, one of the things, many things stood out in this video. It's an astonishing video watching these woke fools at the level of a state government, talk about what they talk about. But at one point in there, what, one of the things that stands out is that they're trying to define equity and they want to define equity literally as disrupt plus dismantle. And they're arguing about if that's too naked, if they tell the story too clearly, if it gives away the game. So they end up proposing this crazy long paragraph that's like two sentences of fluff, equity is disrupt plus dismantle, 
two sentences of fluff. This kind of fluff is like so that we can enable everybody's fullest potential and everybody can be happy and safe and wonderful in their communities. You know, this nonsense. That's not a, they put that stuff in definitions. That should be a huge red flag to people, by the way. Huge red flag to people that they put that stuff in definitions. That's not a definition. To enable a community to flourish to its greatest possible degree for the largest number of people ever without any kind of possible, this is, this is, this is worse than filler words. It's like, having a knife that you've wrapped in layers of cotton so that people don't realize they're about to get stabbed. But they were explicitly putting the knife right there in plain English. Equity is disrupt and dismantle. So I was dismayed a little bit when I found the final report of the 2020 Office of Equity Task Force that equity is disrupt and dismantle. The definition that they gave at the time does not appear in the final report. Somebody apparently had enough sobriety to, to stop that. But it does turn out to appear many times. The, the, the word disrupt appears many times throughout this document. Dismantle appears many times throughout this document. But at one point, disrupt and dismantle appear in tandem. And in fact, it's listed, they have a section in there called Principles of Success. Principles of Success for the Equity Task Force Report. And the first principle of success is disrupt and dismantle systems of institutional racism and oppression. That's a principle of success. Well, it's not even a principle. So it's a little bit complicated in terms of how they imagine what's going on. But their first thought, when you, how are we going to pull this off? How are we going to create greater uh, neo-socialism, a.k.a. equity, in the state of Washington, they say, oh, we're going to disrupt and dismantle systems of institutional racism and oppression. This is exactly how they phrase the idea, the whole paragraph. Eliminating racism and oppression requires revolutionary change. Let me remind you that this is the 2020 Office of Equity Task Force final proposal to the governor of Washington. This task force existed by by request of the governor and was installed by the legislature signed by the governor later. This this is a task force that exists. Their first idea, their first principle of success is disrupt and dismantle. And they say eliminating racism and oppression requires revolutionary change. Revolution. The Office of Equity's work must be transformative. That, by the way, is a watchword for communism. If you are not aware of that yet, every time you see the word transformative in one of these otherwise boilerplate nonsense things, you can bet communism is happening. You got to keep your eyes open for that. But they go on, they say it must disrupt and dismantle historical systems of institutional racism and oppression throughout every sector and layer of government. That seems like a pretty sweeping mandate. Agencies must systematically identify the harm and exclusions built into our current systems and take immediate action to undo these inequities. In other words, they want to install the dictatorship of the anti-racists that I've pinned on Ibram Kendi. I still, whether it's Kendi or not, Kendi, everybody in Wokeland is a tool of, of institutions and systems that are trying to take things over. The individuals hardly matter. Um, Kendi's just another face on the same idea. Their goal is to have exactly that kind of institutional control. Every sector and layer of government must be reorganized by these people. They must systematically go through and reorganize everything and take immediate action to change. But how? It begins with the first principle of success, which is disrupt and dismantle. All they bring to the table is protest. And that protest and their analysis is rooted in paranoia. 
So like I said, protest and paranoia, or I guess it's paranoia and protest is what I'm calling this. So this is the essence of communism doesn't know how. Like I said, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. They don't know how to make the world that they want. They just believe that if they protest enough, they can make genuine progress. That's their words in the handbook of critical race theory and education. They can make genuine progress toward some magical situation. And they also understand what they do understand very well, better than their right wing and centrist and genuine liberal opponents understand. They understand that if they seize power, they can force it. That's the one thing they actually understand. But the way that they're going to do everything is by belly aching, by protesting, by problematizing, by complaining, by showing up and complaining. We don't have enough of this. This isn't equitable enough. This isn't good enough. Here are our demands. Complain, 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 complain. Because they don't know how to make the thing that they want, and they actually do believe that the thing that they want will emerge if they just get rid of all the problematics. But they understand, and they understand this all too well, and we must understand that they understand this, that they know, besides linguistic alchemy, which is really their only effective tool, that the only way that they can make any headway on this vision that they have, which is a pipe dream is by seizing and claiming and taking power and not giving it back. See how hard it is to remove them? Look at the kind of scandals that are required to remove a school board member. For example, who is abusing their power and implementing this stuff with a very angry parent base around them. Hundreds and thousands of parents complaining, showing up across the country so hard to remove a school board member. And in fact, then the Justice Department comes out through some very fishy circumstances and ends up naming parents domestic terrorists rather than giving them the power to actually have some say over what's happening in their children's schools and education. So this is really, it's really just a crappy program and nobody wants this. And like I said, that's going to cause them to go into kind of a circle uh, of, of paranoia and then more protest and then paranoia. And the, the paranoia is even there, right? In, in the protest, what was going to happen? Well, we're going to get genuine progress by protesting. And then they're going to take some of our progress away from us. We're going to protest until we get some, and they're going to take some away. If you don't know, this is the entire basis for critical race theories, uh, idea of interest convergence, which is really the first big idea of critical race theory that was formulated by Derek Bell, his interest convergence thesis which really parallels ideas that I don't, I don't know how creative or intelligent um, Dr. Bell was because Marcuse was talking about the convergence of forces in society uh, to, to maintain, you know, hegemony. It feels like a lot of this is just kind of plagiarized um, and rewritten into the racial context. But, but you, you read Derek Bell and you get this paranoid view called interest convergence. He's, he's analyzing Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka and he's looking at it and what he's saying is, you know, really it was just in white in, in the white interest. It wasn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't desegregate schools specifically to help black kids get a better education or help black people overall. It was really because white people needed to make themselves look better. And it's really actually an interesting point. If you look into Bell and you read his actual argument about interest convergence, which I don't happen to have in front of me because I didn't realize I was going to go into this. If you read his actual argument, he says it extremely plainly. The thing that he said that white people wanted to make themselves look good in terms of, he, he said there was a movement in the time. So this Brown versus the Board of Education was 1954, 
plus or minus a few years. I forget which one. It's in the 50s. There was a movement at the time by communist regimes to make America look bad for its racial segregation using the idea of workers of the world unite. The communists were claiming to be true anti-racists and they were looking to, you know, other nations like, say, Vietnam that were considering communism or having communism brought in on them. And part of their propaganda campaign was like, look how bad America is. Look how racially segregated is. Communism has answered ra racial segregation. It's workers of the world unite. Race isn't a thing. And communism, blah, blah, blah. And they had this propaganda campaign. And so Bell's argument was actually that we desegregated our schools specifically to defeat communism in America. And so white people in power wanted to stop third world nations from going communist. So in order to do that, they had to take this step of desegregating schools in order to defeat the communist propaganda and uh, catch up to the, the to the communists. So it's very weird that Bell was making an explicitly pro-communist argument in his development of interest convergence while he put down the progress that virtually everybody in this country who's not a critical theorist is proud of that's represented in the step taken in Brown versus Board of Education. We finally take the first real strong legal step to desegregate our schools. And he interprets it cynically enough, not just as white people trying to maintain white advantage, but white people trying to make themselves look good specifically so that third world countries won't go communist. That's actually the argument that he gives. So it's a very fascinating thing, but his, his view there is branching out from that was that all these protests of the 60s, and this is, you can read this throughout, say, Critical Race Theory, the key writings that form the movement, the introduction. I should read that as a series of podcasts. It's very long. It'll probably be like six or eight of them. Um, it's, it's dense, too. It's, it's a difficult read. But all throughout that, say, the introduction to that, the rest of its papers, like Bell's and, and Mary Matsuda and Kimberly Crenshaw and so on, but the introduction is this very telling history of critical race theory up to the point when it was published, which was a few years back. Um, and I think it's a very important read. And what you can see there is that they said, oh, well, we had all these vibrant protests of the 1960s, 50s and 60s, really. We had this huge civil rights movement. We had all this progress. We got the Great Society you know, programs. We got all these civil rights and voting acts passed. Affirmative action, and that's where their tell is, came strongly into the picture. And then people started to think, maybe we don't need to keep doing this forever. Maybe we need to walk some of this back. Maybe we've made this too, uh, you know, we're in our, our quest to make up and our zeal to make up for our the sins of our past, we've overdone some things and want to walk it back. And so their model is, again, we protest, we get stuff we want, and then the evil uh, society walks it back, that paranoid conspiracy theory. And again, if you read Bell and you don't come away with the idea that the guy's a paranoiac, I honestly don't know what to tell you. He's a very strange guy. It comes through in his writing very clearly. I can't diagnose him. I'm not qualified to diagnose anybody. But the, the idea that he has paranoid personality disorder is had, I should say, is not far from my mind having read quite a bit of him. He, I think there was at least one other personality disorder that he had, but that's a topic for another day, maybe. Um, it's very strange. But the paranoia, the cynicism and paranoia in his, in his analysis that follows this exact model, all we have at our disposal is protest. Then they're going to give us a little bit and they're going to take it away from us. So we're going to create this ratchet where we protest and bellyache and cry and complain and get a little bit. And then they're going to take some of it back and we're going to do it again. And we're going to 
basically drag society off the cliff one step at a time while complaining that they won't let us do it in one single revolution. Uh, so then later we can say they never let us try proper communism yet again. Uh, it, it's really palpable. Um, as it turns out, by the way, this this point that I want to stick with, though, and I keep getting away from, that protest is all they bring to the table is is really clear in this structure. They think that power is firmly entrenched so that the only thing they have available to them is to complain in very subversive ways and that then the power will figure out intelligently ways to, to strike back and to pull back from them because everything is against them. There's that paranoid personality. This, by the way, is also why the communists, if you go back and read, what do they do? The, whether, you know, what do they do? What do they do? The leftists give them the revolution. The Antifa type characters give them the revolution. Then the revolution passes. And then what's the first thing they do? What was the first thing these totalitarians do in every case? They take the radicals, line them up and shoot them. They line them up against the wall and shoot them. Who? The radicals that gave them their revolution. Why? Because two reasons, which we heard from, from good old Yuri. Uh, I can't pronounce his last name on the spot without reading it. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, two reasons. One, they know too much. They know that the point was to break society. That's what they got commissioned for, kind of as mercenaries. And two, they're useless. All they do is protest. All they do is agitate. All they do is break down the existing system. Well, you can't have those people, so they're going to get shot. So this is the same thing's going to happen to critical race theorists if this little revolution goes through. They won't get shot. I don't think very many people are actually going to get shot if we end up having the revolution that's happening now. I don't know what will happen if we put sufficient resistance against it, um, shooting may occur. But I actually think the plan is is digital imprison imprisonment. Uh, basically, you need like a super digital passport to leave your house and participate in society. They don't have to shoot anybody. Just let you live your miserable life in, under house arrest unless you play along until you die and then scoop scoop up your, your property. They, they don't have to kill anybody. They're playing a generational game at this point. Um, so I don't know that there, anybody's going to get lined up and shot. But my guess is that critical race theory post-revolution is not going... <laughs> I don't think that Black Lives Matter and Antifa are going to have a good time after the revolution. Let me just put it that way. Um, as I've said in many podcasts, though, we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. This mentality all goes back to him. Herbert Marcuse is the father of the new left. These people are the descendants of the new left. So there's been some mutation in the thought. There's been you can, development of the thought, you know, concept creep, whatever you want to pin it on. But we actually live in Marcuse's world. And I'm so tired of talking about Marcuse, but let's actually read his views on protest. So let's go back to the essay on liberation. This is 1969 essay. I think it's probably, you know, it, everybody says, and they're right, that one-dimensional man is like his magnum opus. 1964 is the date on that one. It's his most important philosophical work. His most, you know, I really think that the most important one for us to read, and you should read One Dimensional Man, unfortunately, a few times because it's very difficult to understand what the hell he's talking about. But the most important one for us to read to understand what's going on in the world is Essay on Liberation, even more than Repressive Tolerance. And we live in the world of those two essays more than anything else. Those two essays are kind of specific offshoots of the contents of One Dimensional Man in many regards. Now, here's what he writes about the nature of their movement and its relationship to protest in 69. Again, this is very influential on the new left. The new left set the stage. 
it became the the uh, radical professors, the radical adults who then trained generations of radical children who are now the uh, professionals and uh, academic elite professionals in society who are training another generation of children. Um, he says, this is the aggressiveness of those with the mutilated experience, with the false consciousness and the false needs, a victim of repression who, for their living, depend on the repressive society and repress the alternative. So let me, since I've just dived in, let me give you some context. He's talking about how the stabilized society is, is filled with all this aggression because it isn't actually getting what it doesn't have a liberated society and it's got to like tamp down on its libido so that it can do productive work etc and so he's saying basically that the society that's functioning is actually filled with people who are ragingly aggressive and what are they aggressive against the alternative which is what communism and so he's talking about you know the stabilized working class the general stabilized society that enjoys and wants to maintain our say american or generally western system of freedom and he says that they have a mutilated experience. Why does he say that they have a mutilated experience? Because the heteronymous interests, all the power, powerful people in the capitalists have swayed them to, to think that life is this and life is that. And they can have this and they can have that. But it's all consumer. It's the consumer treadmill and it's actually driving them crazy. You know, you can't possibly think about what you really want because Coca-Cola put a commercial in front of you that made you think you wanted a Coca-Cola. That kind of thing. They have a mutilated experience. It's not a real experience. They have a false consciousness. They think they have a good life, but in fact, they are unaware, as he would phrase it, of their servitude, their servitude to this capitalist machine. They have false needs like that Coca-Cola. You didn't actually need that, by the way, that treat. You didn't need it. In fact, as you've heard me rail on, and I will probably end up doing it again before we're done here, Marcuse really hates the idea of poor people having a nice life. So, you know, you having your basic needs met and being able to enjoy a nice cold Coca-Cola and just having a good day with your feet kicked up, watching the cars go by. He hates you for that. He hates you for that because you're not a revolutionary in his cause. So that's what he's talking about. That's the, that's the shape. They are the victims of repression who, for their living, in other words, you have to participate in the society to, to earn a living, to go to work. You have to do this whole thing. You are the victims of repression who, for their living, depend on the repressive society and repress the alternative, by which he means communism. Their violence is that of the establishment and takes as targets figures which, rightly or wrongly, seem to be indifferent and to represent an alternative. I don't know if it's here at some point in the essay. He mentions the hippies, the beatniks, the outsiders, the radicals, the troublemakers, blah, blah, blah. But while the image of the libertarian potential of advanced industrial society is repressed and hated by the managers of repression and their consumers, it motivates the radical opposition and gives it its strange and orthodox character. So, again, what are we talking about here? So he says that the advanced, the libertarian potential of the advanced industrial society, what he means by that is that society has actually become sufficiently productive and sufficiently, we have sufficiently good automation and machines, et cetera, to eliminate most of labor. This is, again, him writing in 1969. And that because we don't really need labor, people don't actually have to be chained to the industrial society. So that's liberate, liberate, he's a libertarian, but it, um, but it's liberatory is what it really means, which means communism. So he believes that you actually his, – his argument in this essay broadly is that if you could get the Soviet structure, the social structure up to the level of productivity of capitalism so that it could have this advanced um, this advanced economy that, that's high tech, 
Or if you could pull the capitalist impulse out of capitalists where you already have that level of productivity, you could actually find the answer to a communism that will work this time. And it requires having less stuff if you're capitalist, and it requires becoming more productive if you are socialist. And I would argue that the Chinese, when they opened their markets under Deng Xiaoping, pioneered the model that we would recognize now as communo-fascism that blends these two things together in the Marcusean way that, uh, that, that we're dealing with. But what he's saying is, so that's the libertarian potential. So we could have communism because we have high enough technology now to eliminate a lot of labor. But that, he says, is repressed and hated by the managers of repression. So that's the capitalist class. That's your so-called bourgeoisie and their consumers. So he sees a fusion between the capitalist class and the consumer class who have their false consciousness brought in by the capitalist class as the uh, those who oppose and hate the idea that we could be free, like communist free, whatever that means, um, if we just uh, accepted the so-called alternative. And he says that this... This potential motivates the radical opposition and gives it its strange and orthodox character. Very different from the revolution at previous stages of history, this opposition is directed against the totality of a well-functioning, prosperous society, a protest against its form, the commodity form of men and things, against the imposition of false values and a false morality. This new consciousness and the instinctual rebellion isolate such opposition from the masses and from the majority of organized labor, the integrated majority, and make for the concentration of radical politics and active minorities, mainly among the young middle-class intelligentsia and among the ghetto populations. Here, prior to all political strategy and organization, liberation becomes a vital biological need. And so, this is what I'm telling you. This is the architect of the movement, okay? Herbert Marcuse. This is the architect, the intellectual engine behind the world we live in today. And what did he say? The opposition to the to the opposition to this uh, repressive society that he he sees in the free world requires opposition against the totality of a well-functioning, prosperous society, a protest against its form. That's all they have to bring to the table, is a protest against the very form of a well-functioning, prosperous society. Why? Because capitalism has to be torn down. It can't be a well-functioning, prosperous society. It has to be torn down so that things are bad enough so that we can want to crave liberation as a vital biological need. And he says, well, you have in the ghetto populations and in the young middle-class intelligentsia, the radicalizable college students that he's probably psychologically and who knows what else abusing when he's writing this, you can radicalize dumbass college kids and you can radicalize disaffected ghetto populations and they already have a vital biological need for liberation, which is preposterous, in fact. It is the central irony of the woke movement with the middle-class intelligentsia. That's your entitled, rich little bastards at Yale screaming at Nick Christakis about Halloween costumes and saying, you're supposed to provide us a home and cussing him out and every other thing. This is every college student throwing a gigantic, at some elite university, parents making, you know, untold amounts of money, untold amounts of social capital and privilege among them, 
screaming about how oppressed they are and how, for example, at the University of, of Wisconsin at Madison, how a rock on campus creates an uninclusive environment or an exclusive environment and has to be removed at a cost of 50 some odd thousand dollars. That, that's so preposterous that there's a vital biological need for a vital biological need for liberation from what in these little bastards? From their entitlement, from their cushy-ass lives that don't have any meaning, from they don't know what to do with themselves, from not knowing how the world works and being expected to be elites in a world they positively don't understand? What exactly vital biological need is he talking about in the so-called young middle-class intelligentsia who are a bunch of spoiled little shits in elite colleges that people like him are radicalizing? That's an interesting question. What he's actually saying is he's driving those people insane. Rather than teaching them to be the future leaders that they should be in elite institutions, in a healthy situation or society, he's saying that we should radicalize them. Why? Because we have to have a protest against the very form of a well-functioning, prosperous society. That's all this movement, the neo-Marxist movement, which became identity political following this exact stuff that I just read from Marcusa and became identity Marxism as an offshoot of neo-Marxism. This exact thing, all it brings to the table, neo-Marxism, identity Marxism, all it brings to the table is protest. It believes that if you gibber and complain and break and disrupt and dismantle and destroy enough, then you get a little bit and then society is going to take it back from you. And their goal is to drive you nuts and to radicalize you so that it becomes a vital biological need. Now what he called, what Marcusa called this huge protest against the very form, it's a capital F form, like, you know, platonic form of a well-functioning, prosperous society. He called this the Great Refusal. In One Dimensional Man, he has an entire chapter dedicated to the Great Refusal, uh, and he says that the great refusal is the protest against that which is. The protest, that's all they have. Against what? What are they protesting? That which is. That's it. The system. Everything. If you see it in a kind of a postmodern light, that the system is the deity of the postmodern religion, power dynamics and systems. It's all systems. If you see that as like a deity, it's the protest against the order of the world or God. It's the exact same thing Marx was doing when he was protesting openly. He said he was protesting against God. It was his mission to protest against God. So he called this thing the great refusal, this huge protest against the entire society. The only thing these fools bring to the table, protest against everything. In fact, I don't even have to say protest against everything like, oh, that's a James Lindsay. He's just riffing. No, the exact word for word quote from Marcusa, where he describes a great refusal in One Dimensional Man is, and I quote, the protest against that which is. That's it. He says the great refusal, hyphen, the protest against that which is, meaning that's what it is for him. We can read more. That was 64. We can read more in 69 from him in the essay on liberation. He talks about the refusal. Uh, he says, to, so we can understand more of what this great refusal, this protest against that which is, what it's all about. He says, for the world of human freedom cannot be built by the established societies. 
no matter how much they may streamline and rationalize their dominion. See, so functioning societies are dominion for Marcuse. The society working is dominion. Why? Because it ends up requiring a lot of people to do things sometimes that they don't want to do, like go to work or do some dirty job or do something difficult or work on a day they didn't want to or step away from, you know, some other aspect of their sensuous life, which is what he's always talking about, to be responsible. And that's a problem for him. That's dominion for him. The idea that we have a free society that contains responsibility, that, that freedom and liberty are not the same concept, right? That, that liberty is, is like a two-sided coin with freedom on one side and responsibility on the other. He doesn't want that. He's only going to talk about the world of human freedom, the human freedom. It's liberation instead of liberty. And he says, you know, he says the world of human freedom cannot be built by the established societies, no matter how much they may streamline and rationalize their dominion, their class structure, the perfected controls required to sustain it, to generate needs, satisfactions, and values which reproduce the servitude of human existence. This, quote, voluntary servitude, voluntary in as much as it is introjected into the individuals. So he says you're, you're, you're a servant to the capitalist system. You're a slave of the system. You're put into servitude and bondage, and you think, it's in scare quotes, voluntary is because you think that it's actually your choice to want to participate in this. But in fact, it's only voluntary because it's been introjected into you. You've been brainwashed, socialized to believe that you have to participate in it, and you're unable to see the so-called alternative, the communism. This voluntary servitude, which justifies the benevolent masters, can be broken only through a political practice which reaches the roots of containment and contentment in the infrastructure of man. A political practice of methodical disengagement from and refusal of the establishment, aiming at a radical transvaluation of values. That's the great refusal. So the protest against that which is, it is in fact a political practice which reaches the roots of containment and contentment in the infrastructure of man, reaches the roots of containment and contentment in the infrastructure of man. You have to be made discontent. It's a political practice of methodological, or sorry, methodical disengagement from and refusal of the establishment, aiming at a radical transvaluation of values. We're going to create whole new values. Such a practice involves a break with the familiar. The routine ways of seeing, hearing, feeling, understanding things, so that the organism may become receptive to the potential forms of a non-aggressive, non-exploitative world. So there's your streamlined dominion, right? He says that actually the structure of capitalism is inherently aggressive and exploitative. Why? Because you have to go to work sometimes when you don't want to. You have to do dirty jobs you don't want to do. Sometimes you have to skip out on a day with your buddies or your friends or your family or the concert so you can get a job done because the functioning of society might depend on it. No matter how remote from these notions the rebellion may be, Marcuse tells us, no matter how destructive and self-destructive it may appear, no matter how great the distance between the middle-class revolt and the metropoles and the life-and-death struggle of the wretched of the earth, common to them is the depth of of the refusal. So they're saying he's saying that what critical theory exists to do is to create a protest against everything that is, a movement of protest against what is. 
and to refuse the entire society methodically. That's the point. That's all this movement has to bring to the table. Rooted in paranoid conspiracy theories, here we have the great capitalist masters, or this huge conspiracy theory, are interjecting values into you. You can't possibly like your own life. You can't possibly want to enjoy your freedom. Go to work. Do a good job, even though it's not always fun. Earn a living because stuff has to get done. And, you know, come home, proud of yourself with a little bit of money, maybe a little discretionary income, which he hates is discretionary income. He gets so mad about discretionary income that you might enjoy your life. That's his problem. And he says, the thing is, no matter, there's a rebellion against this, a great refusal of this whole system because it's, it's terrible. It's false consciousness, et cetera. And he says, it doesn't matter how destructive or self-destructive this movement might appear. It doesn't matter how destructive and self-destructive the movement might appear. It's necessary. It's necessary because it, it, it speaks to the depth of refusal that they're willing to cut off their nose to spite their own face. Because he says that this is the middle-class revolt. That's the people he's radicalizing. And the life and death struggle of the wretched of the earth, which at least in the United States is a tremendous exaggeration, that you can hear Black Lives Matter screaming into that exaggeration uh, very clearly. He says, this is the point of the great refusal. He says, it makes them reject the rules of the game that is rigged against them. The ancient strategy of patience and persuasion, the reliance on the goodwill of the establishment, its false and immoral comforts, and its cruel affluence. And so you have to refuse the entire society. So the, all the critical theory movements bring to the table, again, rooted in paranoia about conspiracy theories, about how society works, all down to the point, and I don't think I articulated this very clearly earlier, so I'll try again. The idea is that they have a vision for the world, a utopia, and they believe that if people just went along with their stupid plan that we could get there, they don't know how, but if we all just went along, it would work because we would have to change how we think about everything, and then everything, we'd all become communists and everything would be great. We'd be new Soviet men. And they, so they think that this is the deal, and that the people are rejecting their stupid plan, which isn't even a plan. They think that people are rejecting their plan because... They want to keep their privilege. They want to keep their entrenched power. That they want to keep their their access to to being able to repress people, other people. They they cannot possibly comprehend that they actually just have a terrible program. That their program, being only one of paranoia and protest, doesn't work. And so paranoia and protest intensify and intensify again and intensify again to the point where you get a great refusal. Society is a giant conspiracy against people like you. Of course, they're not possibly going to. All you can all you can do is expect to meet resistance that you have to find ways to overcome, and then um, the only thing you can do is just completely refuse the entire society, protest against it, and act like a lunatic. So all we see from the critical movement is total emphasis on protest against everything. That's exactly the words Marcuse used to describe it protest against everything that is. There are no positive solutions. But that, of course, they're not shy about either. People just don't understand it. People look at the woke movement and they say, oh, wow, they're pointing at these problems and they want to make solutions. They want to solve racism. They want to solve sexism. They want to solve... They don't want to solve these problems. They have absolutely no mechanism in their theory provided to solve the problems. All they can do is refuse the existing society. And you could say, just to be generous, you could say, oh, well, yeah, we should refuse racism. We should refuse. We used to be racist. We refuse that. We should refuse it. That's not what they're talking about. 
They're talking about refusing the entire logic of society. This is where Kendi says that Kendi now says that to be truly anti-racist, you have to be anti-capitalist. He's still saying that. They're, they're still saying that. He's not still saying that. He is saying that. They, meaning all of the critical theorists, are still saying that. It's all down to this vision. No positive solutions, only negative thinking. And that's, of course, what Marcuse referred to it as, negative thinking. There's... I said this wrong earlier. I don't think there's an entire chapter in One Dimensional Man dedicated to the Great Refusal. It's been a while since I've read One Dimensional Man. Uh, several months. I was on a flight to Madison, Wisconsin in a thunderstorm last time I was reading it. A nightmare of a book. But anyway, um, so that was sometime this summer. Uh, there is a chapter, however, on negative thinking. I think it's the fifth chapter. An entire chapter to this idea of negative thinking. And the idea, he, what is he, how does he describe negative thinking? The defeated logic of protest. The defeated logic of protest. So again, everything comes back to protest for these people. Everything comes back to protest for these people. Negative thinking is the engine. This is, if you go back to the, any of the podcasts I've done on Marcuse, but especially if you go back to the Hegel podcast, and I describe the idea of negative thinking when I talk about the alchemy, which we heard uh, Marcuse talk about in Counter-Revolution Revolt already in this episode. If you go back to that episode, you hear negative thinking is supposed to become positive. And the reason is because they believe that there is like a seed of a perfect utopian society inside of our society. And if you peel off the outer layer of crap, if you problematize, if you protest, if you pull back the problems, then that seed of gold will not only blossom and be not only be freed, but will blossom and turn the entire mundane base metal of society into that gold. And so it's an it's alchemical idea that the, the, the perfect society is contained within our wretched society, and that what we have to do is fight the order of the existing society to rip off everything they don't like and create that new reality. That's why you have to protest against everything that is. Um, and he says that what this does when you get people hooked on this is it gets people clamoring for a new life. At least he says this in Essay on Liberation, or switched works again. What does he write in Essay on Liberation about this? He says, well, you know, people are going to be clamoring for a new life as they come to understand this. What kind of life? He says, we're still confronted with the demand to state the concrete alternative. The demand is meaningless if it asks for a blueprint of the specific institutions and relationships which would be those of the new society. They cannot be determined a priori. They will develop in trial and error as the new society develops. Let me tell you that part again. I don't, I don't have to read it all again. But he says people are going to hate capitalism. They're going to hate the system that's working against them. You're going to radicalize them. They're going to clamor. For, it's going to become a vital need that they have a new life. What's this new life going to look like? We have to state the alternative, he says. What does it look like in concrete terms? Die, we can't do that. That demand is meaningless, he says. If it asks for a blueprint of, suspe of specific institutions and relationships, that would be in the new society. We don't know what that looks like. They said they can't be determined a priori. They will develop in trial and error. This is where I, this is the thesis of communism doesn't know how. This is the essence of negative thinking. They don't have positive solutions. All they have is protest. Protest everything. The defeated logic of protest. This is what we're describing now. The negative thinking is the defeated logic of protest. And he says the demand to state alternatives is meaningless. We can't actually even tell you what it's going to look like. We don't know. We don't have any idea. All we know is that we don't like what there is now because it's not communism. He says, if we could form a concrete concept of the alternative today, it would not be that of an alternative. 
the possibilities of the new society are sufficiently abstract that it is removed from and incongruous with the established universe to defy any attempt to identify them in terms of this universe. Now, this is a key idea in critical theory, and we'll come back to this in a minute. Um, the, the point of critical theory, if you read Max Horkheimer or listen to Max Horkheimer, where he was interviewed on this, is specifically that you can't possibly describe what a better society would look like in the terms of the current society. The existing terms are bad. This is why you have Marcuse and Counter-Revolution and Revolt. Well, first of all, an essay on liberation saying we need to develop a new language. And then in Counter-Revolution and Revolt, he explicitly says we need to use the alchemy of language to divorce words from their usual meaning and do something completely different. Why? Because the existing terminology, the existing world itself is already, the established universe is already so corrupted that we can't possibly picture. It'd be like trying to describe, if we go back to the alchemy analogy, it'd be like trying to describe gold in terms of lead. You can't do it. It's too abstract, removed from an incongruous with the incongruous with the established universe to defy any attempt to identify them in terms of this universe. We can't even understand what a utopia would look like is what he's saying. We hear this in Henry Giroux as well, where he talks about utopia uh, in his book uh, on critical pedagogy, which is like a 2011 book or something like that. Gen Henry Giroux in that book, I don't have that in front of me either, says that utopia is actually a set of possibilities. He doesn't describe what it looks like. He says it's a set of possibilities for a better, more democratic, in other words, more communist society. They don't have the slightest idea what they're talking about. And if you listen to the Communism Doesn't Know How podcast, you'll understand that. He goes on to say, Marcuse that is, however, the question cannot be brushed aside by saying that what matters today is the destruction of the old, of the powers that be, making way for the emergence of the new. Such an answer neglects the essential fact that the old is not simply bad, that it delivers the goods, and that people have a real stake in it. So he's saying the system works, and we can't just completely just abolish it. We have to do something slightly different. It's too simple to just say disrupt and dismantle, isn't it? He says, that, you see, because he says, because, you know, people, it delivers the goods, people have a real stake in it. And he says, there can be societies which are much worse. There are such societies today. The system of corporate capitalism has the right to insist that those who work for its replacement justify their action. But the demand to state concrete alternatives, he says, is justified for yet another reason. Negative thinking draws whatever force it may have from its empirical basis, the actual human condition in the given society. So what he's, the, the, sorry, that's only half of the what he calls empirical, and the given possibilities to transcend this, con this condition to enlarge the realm of freedom. So he says empirical. This is, this is not empirical. This is when this is how Marxists use the word empirical. They, this is how Marxists use the word scientific, which is, in other words, to say that you're going to impose Marxist theory on something and call it science, which is what they've done from the beginning, Wissenschaftlich or Sozialismus, or however the hell you say it in German, the scientific socialism of Marx. It's just rethinking of this, which is also, by the, by the way, a negative thinking project. Negative thinking draws whatever force it may have from its Marxist basis. He says empirical, the actual human condition in society as analyzed by Marxists and the given possibilities to transcend this condition to enlarge the realm of freedom. He says, in this sense, negative thinking is by virtue of its own internal concepts positive. Negative thinking is positive, oriented toward and comprehending a future which is contained in the present. Okay, so that's the alchemy part. And the thing that I read from Counter-Revolution and Revolt, where he talks about the alchemy 
of words is obviously felt again here. It says, and in this containment, which is an important aspect of the general containment policy pursued by the established societies, the future appears as possible liberation. It is not the only alternative. So he hasn't given, by the way, a concrete alternative. It's just liberation, right? It is not the only alternative. The advent of a long period of civilized barbarism. And this is an aside. He's pointing out that it's not guaranteed. This is key to Marcuse's thinking. This is key. Marx thought that communism was going to be inevitable. Capitalism would inevitably collapse. And when it collapsed, it would inevitably go into a socialist state dictatorship of the proletariat that would usher in the communist utopia. Inevitable. The neo-Marxists do not believe this, especially the ones after World War II, which Marcuse refers to as the post-fascist era. Um, the post-fascists do not believe this. They believe that capitalism will collapse and that it will either be rescued, and this was the point of my podcast on sustainability about Herbert Marcuse, it will either be rescued by socialists or it will devolve in, uh, into um, fascism. Those are the only two options. Capitalism is certain to collapse, and it will either lead to socialism or fascism. So we must choose socialism. Therefore, being a stupid little anti-fakami means being anti-fascist, because the only two possible options, if you need to understand their so-called logic, are communism or fascism. And so you better choose communism. So, uh, so what does he say here? It's not the only alternative. Socialism is not the only alternative. Liberation is not the only alternative. He says the advent of a long period of civilized, that's in scare quotes, barbarism, with or without the nuclear destruction, is equally contained in the present. Civilized barbarism means the continuity of this quasi-fascist program that he says is a clear and present danger all throughout repressive tolerance. Negative thinking, he says, and the praxis guided by it is the positive and positing effort to prevent this utter negativity. So that's what I said. He believes that the socialists, the critical theorists, are saving the world from nuclear calamity or fascism by ushering in a liberated socialism, which is turns out, and we see in 2021, to be a fascist catastrophe. Uh, he says the concept of the primary initial institutions of liberation is familiar and concrete enough. So he's going to give a concrete description, and he begins this way. Collective ownership. Collective control and planning of the means of production and distribution. Hmm. So, step one, communism. This is the foundation, a necessary but not sufficient condition for the alternative. It would make possible the usage of all available resources for the abolition of poverty, which is, so abolition of poverty would be the goal broadly of Marxism. And he says this is, a, which is the prerequisite for the turn from quantity into quality, the creation of a reality in accordance with the new sensitivity and the new consciousness. I've argued, I think persuasively, that intersectionality is a piece of a broader new sensibility or sensitivity, new consciousness, and that broader idea is sustainability. But you'll notice he didn't give a concrete alternative. All he said is it begins with communism, it involves the abolition of poverty, and then it recreates reality in accordance with a new sensitivity and a new radical critical consciousness. It doesn't actually give the thing that he's asked to give. Why? Because negative thinking is at the heart of this whole thing. All they have is protest. Remember, that is, uh, how did he describe negative thinking? Um, as the defeated logic of protest. Of course, this isn't unique to Marcuse. Uh, you've heard me quote it before, Theodore Adorno, who by this point, by the way, Adorno and Marcuse in the end didn't get along very well. And, uh, Adorno actually took um, 
He took Marcuse to task for trying to radicalize students instead of to actually educate them. And this created a huge schism and Adorno ended up getting thrown out. <laughs> uh, they were going to radicalize. They were going to go full bore. They were going to attempt a revolution and Adorno got cold feet and they kicked him out. Um, but anyway, Adorno expressed a similar idea. He said, you, one may not cast a picture of utopia in a positive manner. It's again that alchemical idea. You, you can't say what it's going to look like. You have no idea. The log, the existing logic is already too all encompassing. You can't think outside of the box at all because it's not possible to get outside of the box. Uh, we'll only know what it looks like outside of the box when there is no box. That's basically their argument. So let's get rid of the box. That's basically critical theory in a nutshell. We can't possibly know what out-of-the-box thinking looks like until we're out of the box. And the only way to get out of the box is to abolish the box. Alfhaven der Box, whatever box is in German. Um, Horkheimer expressed similar, Max Horkheimer, the critical theory, he said, this was in an interview in 1969, the critical theory, which I conceived later, he, comparing to Marx's critical theory, he says, Marx's critical theory had a shortcoming, blah, blah, blah. And he says the critical theory, which I conceived later, so he means what we call critical theory today, neo-Marxism, is based on the idea that one cannot determine what is good, what a good, a free society would look like from within the society in which we now live. We lack the means. But in our work, we can bring up the negative aspects of this society that we want to change. So again and again and again, I just keep coming back to this point because it's a point of the podcast. Other than a paranoid conspiracy theory motivating them, that everybody's against them for the wrong reasons in their stupid program, as opposed to people being against them because they have terrible ideas that are going to lead to totalitarianism and destruction, uh, they have a paranoid conspiracy theory. The only other thing they bring to the table is protest. They don't have any positive vision. They don't know what they want to build. They don't know what it looks like when they build it. They openly say they don't know what it should look like when we get there, what it should look like while we're building it. They don't have the slightest concept of any of that. All they have is protest, which is exactly what we heard in the, the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education in the beginning, that the entire program in the critical perspective is one where you, where genuine progress is only achieved by protest that then is walked back by the existing society, which is a paranoid conspiracy. This is exactly, again, what we hear in the 2020 Office of Equity Task Force proposal in the state of Washington. The first principle of success, again, was disrupt and dismantle systems of institutional racism and oppression because eliminating racism and oppression requires revolutionary change. The Office of Equity's work must be transformative. It must disrupt and dismantle historical systems of institutional racism and oppression throughout every sector and layer of government. Agencies must systematically identify and the, the harm and exclusions built into our current systems, take immediate action to undo these inequities. In other words, we don't know what a better system is going to look like, but we do know at every level and every sector and every layer of the government that we can work, in Max Horkheimer's words, to bring up the negative aspects of this society that we want to change. What their program is, is to protest, in other words, disrupt and dismantle, to protest that which exists so that they can gain power, so that they can... Communism doesn't know how. And it will magically work this time. That's all they have to bring to the table. Um, their objective is a total protest against everything that works 
until they can gain, use that protest to gain enough power to take control of things because their genuine belief is that if enough people believe in them, that they can put enough in, in their ideas, I should say, if enough people believe critical theory and those people occupy enough positions of institutional power, just like with the dictatorship of the proletariat, they believe that then what we can do is usher in a system that isn't oppressive any longer. So just to summarize very quickly, um, the, the, the view kind of from Marxism as far as how, what does capitalism to socialism to communism look like? Marx saw these as stages, the last three stages of history, which has a, has a plan, a telos, a purpose to get to communism, to get to the end of history. And the last three stages with capitalism or the workers would become aware of their alienation. They would become aware of their exploitation, the surplus value that they produce by their labor being scooped up by the capitalists and uh, used for their own enrichment and therefore, in some sense, according to Marx's theory, stolen from the laborers. Uh, this is based in Marx's take on the labor theory of value, that all value is created by the labor to do work. And... Um, their idea was that the, the working class would become an awakened proletariat that realizes this, and then they would seize the means of production and establish a dictatorship of the proletariat that would usher in a system, a new system where the worker, the working class organizes into a political force that seizes and owns the means of production and becomes the state at the same time as a dictatorship of the proletariat. Why? The, gen, the, the, the gen, general background assumption that Marx was operating from if we want to give his theory credit instead of just saying that he wanted to destroy everything, uh, the, the the idea is that, oh, well, now enlightened people who know what exploitation and alienation are in charge, uh, now that they are the people in charge, they're not going to reproduce that on other people because they know how bad it is. They know that it's terrible. So they have a better perspective and won't reproduce it. And then so much of Marxian theory after this, you can say that this is like a uh, Earth at the center of the universe model. And so you have your planets going around the Earth and the sun going around the earth and the motion in the sky doesn't work out right because this is it doesn't work in reality uh it turns out when people become a dictatorship they abuse their power and so what do you have to do well you have to start creating epicycles that explain that the planets are going around in little circles on their circles or on their orbits so that their weird motion through the sky can be explained and now oh well it doesn't quite match so we need a epicycle on the epicycle on the epicycle and this was actually the state of 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 astronomy up until the Copernican Revolution, that people were, you know, putting the Earth at the center, and that they they had the incorrect assumption, and that these things went, you know, the planets went around, but in the sky they couldn't explain the motion of the planets in the sky. So they said, oh well, they must have little wheels that they that they they have these little epicycles that they go around on their own to try to explain that motion. And they just kept coming up with a more and more convoluted theory to try to explain how things work. And this is what neo-Marxism has done on the faulty assumption that the dictatorship of the proletariat is going to usher in a perfect system because they aren't going to become exploiters. And so you have all this stuff, whether it's Marcuse, whether it's Paolo Ferreri and the pedagogy of the oppressed talking about how the logic of the existing system, this is really what the critical theory is all about. This is what we're actually talking about. The logic of the, the existing system infiltrates into the next system, the, the, into the new order, and you don't get away from it. That's what essay and liberation is actually about. That's why he says we need a new sensitivity or new sensibility or a new consciousness or a new reality. And a bi we have to change the biological needs of man. That's why he says that. He says that the previous Soviet attempts at socialism didn't work. And the reason they didn't work is because the logic of domination came with 
And that's what Ferrari says. It says, oh, you guys didn't do it right. That's why Russia didn't work out. Because the logic of domination came with the, he says that the, the oppressed were so used to being oppressed that all they understand is oppression. And so the second they get power, they become oppressors. And uh, there might be something correct to that. But what's incorrect is the belief that that can be got away from. So they have this incorrect belief, like the earth at the center of the universe, which is that if you put enlightened, properly enlightened people in positions of absolute power, that those people will usher us through to a place where the program that they're instituting becomes spontaneous. That's the central article of faith of communism, that if you put, if you awaken people to a new consciousness, a communist consciousness of one kind or another, whether it's critical, whether it's class, whether it's race, whether it's sex, you awaken people, you put those people in a position of power, absolute power, a dictatorship of the anti-racist, a dictatorship of the proletariat, that those people because will not reproduce oppression if you get the formula right. And when they, when they don't reproduce oppression, what's going to happen is that the program, whether it's called socialism, whether it's called equity, is going to then become spontaneous, which is the state of communism or justice. So I don't know if that was very clear, but in capitalism, you have an exploiter class exploiting the, the, the exploited class. The exploited class awakens, revolts, seizes the means of production, becomes in charge. They take over, and because they're enlightened, this is the article of faith, because they're enlightened, or first article of faith, they will not reproduce the exploitation. So now you have a system in which you get away from the exploitation, and sooner or later, as Marcuse phrases it, that will introject into people, that new morality will introject into them. If it's Kendi, if we force anti-racism on people long and hard enough, people will just become anti-racist. It's just what you do. It's just how things are. We're going to completely remake man by remaking his social conditions until it's automatic. And when it's automatic, then the socialist era ends. You don't have socialism anymore. The state becomes redundant. You don't have to force people to do what they were already doing with a dictatorship. So obviously, and this is, you see three key articles of faith here. The this first one being that the enlightened won't reproduce the problems. The second one being that the enlightened, uh, that the program will become sufficiently enforced, will become spontaneous. And the third one being that the enlightened people seeing this has happened will then relinquish power. The state will dissolve and you'll have a stateless class of society called communism. That's the result of enforcing socialism until it becomes spontaneous and natural. I call it the the uh, spontaneity thesis of communism. Basically, that eventually socialism becomes spontaneous. That's called communism. In our updated lexicon, equity becomes spon- is enforced. It becomes spontaneous and becomes justice. Racial equity becomes racial justice when it's spontaneous. And you can understand why they don't believe that justice has occurred, even when justice is served by our courts, for example. Um, and why they always say that justice is the goal and it's way down the line and we have to enforce equity, blah, blah, blah. You can actually understand what they're saying. And um, there's a long kind of diversion to point out that they don't know how any of that's supposed to happen. It's based on three articles of faith, all of which are false. They should be treated as a religion because those articles of faith are preposterous. Um, they never work. They lead to the deaths of millions when people try to enforce it. Uh, it will happen again is happening right now, as a matter of fact. But their only method that they have, because they don't have a program that works, that doesn't make any sense, is total protest against everything that functions. The things that are functioning, they believe, this is the paranoia, the conspiracy theory, the things that are functioning, like colorblind equality. The things that are functioning, like capitalism. 
especially when you figure out how to, to reduce the influence of trusts and monopolies. The things that are functioning have to be protested against because the things that are functioning are teaching people that the system still works and doesn't need to be overthrown for something different. So they have to have a total protest against everything that works. That's the point. So protest is all they bring to the table, born out of paranoia that the system is a self-perpetuating monster, as opposed to something that actually works pretty good, even though they admit that it does. You know, that same interview where I quoted from Horkheimer a little bit ago, Max Horkheimer, he points out that the problem with Marx's theory is that advanced capitalism actually works. He says Marx believed that capitalism would immiserate the worker, but it actually allows him to build a better life. That's the problem for him. I've ranted about that before. Marcuse does the same thing, and I think I did a whole podcast basically where I got in a huge rage about about this. A couple of most recent podcasts about Marcuse, actually any of the 10 I think I've recorded about him. Um, and so their answer is we need a total rebellion against a prospering society because it is prospering. And of course, this is not a plan for building, but for tearing down in case you needed rock solid proof that their entire program is just to tear things down. That's all they have because the negative thinking will become positive because the, uh, perfect society is contained within the existing society if we can just tear off all the rot, which is ultimately an alchemical view. What is this total protest against everything supposed to look like? We can go back to Essay on Liberation and read. If now, he says, in the rebellion of the young intelligentsia, your radicalized college students, the right and the truth of the imagination become the demands of political action. If surrealistic forms of protest and refusal spread throughout the movement, this apparently insignificant development may indicate a fundamental change in the situation. So he says, if things get weird, it might work. The political protest, assuming a total character, reaches into a dimension which, as aesthetic dimension, has been essentially apolitical. The political protest activates in this dimension precisely the foundational organic elements, the human sensibility which rebels against the dictates of repressive reason, and in, so, in doing so invokes the sensuous power of the imagination. So you can feel him reproducing the counter-enlightenment themes there of Rousseau. The political action which insists on a new morality and a new sensibility as preconditions and results of social change occurs at a point at which the repressive rationality that has brought about the achievements of industrial society becomes utterly regressive, rational only in its efficiency to contain liberation. So he says basically that the logic of society, free societies, is to prevent communism at some point. It just increasingly becomes to keep communism out. And it's doing all these things like, you know, creating a stable middle class and, you know, preventing trusts and exploit, genuine exploitation. And it's actually working and that it's really just working like Derek Bell thought to try to contain communism. Wasn't that what Derek Bell thought? Of course it was. Why did we do Brown versus Board of Education? Why did we desegregate schools according to Derek Bell, the brilliant mind behind critical race theory? We did it, of course, because otherwise Vietnam might go communist and we have to defeat communist propaganda. That was the only real reason to make white America look not racist so that the communists didn't have a moral edge in their arguments. Rational only in its efficiency to contain liberation. Beyond the limits and beyond the power of repressive reason now appears the prospect for a new relationship between sensibility and reason, namely the harmony between sensibility and a radical consciousness. Rational faculties capable of projecting and defining the objective material conditions of freedom, its real limits and chances. But instead of being shaped and permeated by the rationality of domination, the sensibility would be guided by the imagination, 
mediating between the rational faculties and the sensuous needs. So this is where you hear the rest of their program. They don't just have protest and paranoia. They also have reimagining. Reimagine. I think somewhere I ran into recently that, and I know I know this is in the the Washington State thing. They don't tie it to Build Back Better, but the so-called Build Back Better slogan is tied to the idea of disrupt, dismantle, reimagine, and rebuild. How do you rebuild? Well, we can't cast a positive picture of utopia because the present society, according to Horkheimer, we lack the means to know what it looks like. According to all these guys, but the goal is disrupt and dismantle so that we can break everything. So that we can reimagine, and that's what he says, it will be guided by the imagination, mediating between the rational faculties and the sensuous needs. There's Rousseau's dialectic, where he wanted to make, uh, what did he call them, savages made to live in cities. The rational Western white European against the brown or black sensual instinctual savage who can't live in cities because he's too instinctual. This is all Marcuse is reproducing. And so this is your dialectic right there for you. But it's going to be guided by the imagination. We're going to imagine things. How well, as we go, we'll build the flame, the plane while we fly it. Uh, and you can think about that for, for five minutes, about how great an idea that is. That's what he's talking about. Um, the same trend, he says, of production and consumption, which makes for the affluence and attraction of advanced capitalism, makes for the perpetuation of the struggle for existence. So you have to go to work to keep things going. You get you know, like stuff has to get done to keep things going. He's saying we should actually, if you read One Dimensional Man, you can actually get this pretty clearly. He actually, and he says it in a few other places. I did a podcast on this and the sustainability. He actually thinks that there's a point where we've, we're doing enough. We're actually meeting people's needs well enough. We should not continue to try to create new needs, as he puts it. We shouldn't try to continue to create more stuff people might enjoy that allows them more ability to pursue happiness, which is one of our fundamental freedoms. No, we don't want to do that because that's um, false needs for him. That's false needs. And what it's actually doing is perpetuating, he says, the struggle for existence. We still have to go to work. We have to work our asses off. We have to work hard. Oh, if we build a complicated health system that saves millions of lives and improves quality of lives for many people, think of how many people that's going to cause to have to work. And think of how expensive it's going to be. And because it's so expensive, now we're going to have to have other people have 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 jobs and do all this crap they don't want to do that actually immiserates them and makes them sicker, blah, 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 blah. This is how he thinks about the world. This is why they want to protest everything. Um. Because it makes for the perpetuation of the struggle for existence, for the increasing necessity to produce and consume the non-necessary. So there's apparently a necessary enough, and then we should just stop production at that level, and things will work out great. That's the vision for his his liberation. And he says, uh, the, here's his problem. The growth of the so-called discretionary income in the United States indicates the extent to which income earned is spent on other than basic needs. Yeah. Bully for you for enjoying your life. Bully for you for having the largest amount of freedom. And do you, do you appreciate the moment we live in? Do you appreciate what we've been, what we've, we've not been given, what we have worked as a species to obtain for ourselves and are spreading to more and more people? You are able in a free society under this advanced technology that we have, you are free to pursue meaning where you want in a new way, any way you want, in ways that weren't even conceivable two generations, three generations ago. You have more avenue. If you want to be a hang glider, you can probably go do that. You want to win an Olympic medal in javelin? 
You can teach yourself on YouTube, as just happened in the Olympics this year. Some guy from India teaches himself to throw javelins on YouTube, wins a gold medal. You have more pathways to find meaning than you ever have in your entire life. It's like going to the grocery store and there's too many brands of cereal, so you don't know which one to pick. What do they call it? Selection paralysis or decision paralysis or something like that. You have that, but it's your whole life. Like our whole society could be diagnosed as having decision paralysis about meaning in life. But that's the problem. That he, that's what liberation's supposed to be about, is to have all of these possibilities. But no, he's complaining about it because your income is being spent on other than basic needs. Sorry that you're happy. You asshole working class person. You should be miserable. So you'll be a revolutionary for his stupid cause. It says formal luxuries become basic needs. A normal, like coffee. Coffee maybe used to be a luxury. Now how are you going to get through your day without your Starbucks? Former luxuries become basic needs. A normal development which under corporate capitalism extends the competitive business of living to newly created needs and satisfactions. The fantastic output of all sorts of things and of services defies the imagination. Yeah, you have more ways to be comfortable and happy, to enjoy your life, to pursue meaning, to find something that's valuable to you and special to you than you ever have in, in the past. It defies the imagination, but that's terrible because it, it says while restricting and distorting it in the commodity form. Does capitalism, through which capitalist production enlarges its hold over human existence. And yet, precisely through the spread of this commodity form, the repressive social morality which sustains the system is being weakened. The obvious contradiction between the liberating possibilities of the technological transformation of the world, the light and free life on the one hand, and the intensification of struggle for, of the struggle for existence on the other. There is no intensification of the struggle for existence. That's what they're ruining by making us all serfs again. Uh, generates among the underlying population that diffused aggressiveness, which, unless steered to hate and fight the alleged national enemy, there's your communism again, hits upon any suitable target, white or black, native or foreigner, Jew or Christian, rich or poor. So what do you have to do, according to Marcuse, to deal with this intolerable situation? You're going to have to wage war on everything that works. Total protest. That's what this is all about. All they bring to the table. Again, we can go to the essay on liberation a little bit more. He says, to the degree to which the rebellion... What are you What are you protesting, kids? To the degree to which the rebellion is directed against a functioning, prosperous, democratic society, it is a moral rebellion against the hypocritical, aggressive values and goals, against the blasphemous religion of this society, against everything it takes seriously, everything it professes while violating what it professes. Not happy with the society as it is, this Herbert Marcuse. Again, that level of hate for our society and protest of everything that is, is what this crazy ideology that swept our country actually offers. That's all it offers. It offers no solutions, just raging protest against functioning, democratic, free society. He says, and what is the nature that it, that it takes on when this, when this emerges? He says, the unorthodox character of this opposition, which does not have the traditional class basis, and which is at the same, so it's not the workers of the world unite anymore, and which is at the same time a political, instinctual, and moral rebellion, shapes the strategy and scope of the rebellion. It extends to the entire organization of the existing liberal parliamentary democracy. Among the new left, remember that's his program, a strong revulsion against traditional politics prevails, against that whole network of parties, committees, and pressure groups on all levels, against working within this network and with its methods. If we're talking about the deep state, okay, uh, but he's going broader. This entire sphere and atmosphere with all its power is invalidated. Nothing 
that any of these politicians, representatives, or candidates declares is of any relevance to the rebels. They cannot take it seriously, although they know very well that it may mean to them getting beaten, going to jail, losing a job. Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. It's the other way around now. They are not professional martyrs. They prefer not to be beaten, not to go to jail, not to lose their job. But for them, this is not the question. This is not a question of choice. The protest and refusal are parts of their metabolism. All they bring to the table. Protest and refusal are parts of their metabolism. And they extend to the power structure as a whole. The democratic process organized by this structure is discredited to such an extent that no part of it can be extracted which is not contaminated. Total protest against everything. Moreover, using this process would divert energy to snail-paced movements. For example, electioneering with the aim of significantly changing the composition of the U.S. Congress might take a hundred years, judging by the present rate of progress. And assuming that effort, uh, that the effort of political radicalization continues unchecked, and the performance of the courts from the lowest to the highest does not mitigate the trust in the given uh, democratic constitutional setup. Under these circumstances, to work for the improvement of the existing democracy easily appears as indefinitely delaying attainment of the goal of creating a free society. So we have to have a revolution. It's not going to work. All we have is total protest against everything it is. We can't use incremental methods. We can't go slowly. It's all too slow. Everything is going to be a catastrophe, says. Thus, in some sectors of the opposition, the radical protest tends to become antinomian, anarchistic, and even non-political. Antinomian is like a defiance of of God, right? Here is another reason why the rebellion often takes, and this is one of my favorite lines, it turns out it re, he reproduces this in, in counter-revolution revolt in another way, uh, but here is another reason why the rebellion often takes on the weird and clownish forms which get on the nerves of the establishment. In the face of the gruesomely serious totality of institutionalized politics, satire, irony, and laughing provocation become a necessary dimension of the new politics. The contempt for the deadly esprit de siru, being spirit of seriousness, which permeates the talkings and doings of the professional and semi-professional politicians, appears as a contempt or as contempt for the values which they profess while destroying them. So satire, mockery, be clown world, the Joker. That's what they're bringing to the table. Total protest against the entire thing, clownishly, no seriousness. The rebels revive the desperate laughter and the cynical defiance of the fool as a means for demasking the deeds of the serious ones who govern the whole. You, of course, can kind of compare that whole little rant to the call on critical race theory and introduction, Delgado and Stefanczyk, where they say that traditional civil rights approaches are not to be used in critical race theory specifically because they embrace incrementalism and step-by-step progress. Those things are too slow. Instead, within critical race theory, within critical theories more broadly, you actually have to have revolution. You have to have total refusal of the existing structure. And the way that you have total refusal of the existing structure is by giving these people that want to refuse it totally power to completely rewrite it according to their goofball theory. Now, queer theory is the same thing, but on steroids. Um... I don't. I haven't talked a lot about queer theory yet, but it's a total. It's funny because on the, on the surface, it's a total refusal 
of the idea of categories at all. Sex, gender, sexuality categories, they don't mean anything. The categories are unstable. You can move around in them. But it's the total rejection, the war on normality. The idea of normal is its own repression. If you had to summarize, boil down queer theory to one concept, it's that normality is a form, the idea of something being normal itself is oppressive. And so it posits queerness as an identity without an essence. It's all just a huge protest, though, right? Look at how they actually do with their clownish forms or clownish representations that annoy the establishment. Look at how their protest actually works. You can tell that not only does it protest the normal in every possible way, but it does so in a blatantly disingenuous way. It's not even creative. It's not even all that artful. It's, in fact, garbage. Um, But more than that, it's blatantly not real. It's not even protest. It's rebellion. And there's a big difference because rebellion is a matter of fact, when you rebel against something, you're shackled to the thing that you're rebelling against. You have to go the opposite direction is the thing you're rebelling against. So if you're rebel, if you're rebelling against some, your parents or whatever, you're actually still bound by your parents' ideas. You're just doing the opposite of them. If you're rebelling against, um, being, you know, male or female, then what are you going to do? Well, obviously you're going to flip over. You're going to be male and say that you're female, but then the way you're going to do that is by reproducing the stereotypes in the extreme. Or if you're going to reject the idea of the binary completely, you're going to look as much like a lumpy potato with short, colorful hair as possible. Green hair, probably. Uh, And you're going to look as much like a human potato as you can because potatoes don't have genders. And so you're going to seriously lean into the stereotypes and this kind of weird clownish rejection of them. And they also, it's, it's also disingenuous in the fact that they do the, they, they, they break the idea of categorization with obsessive categorization. Like the kind that like self-obsessed narcissists would, would fascinate themselves with for hours. They have hundreds of genders, hundreds of sexualities. That's not even enough. They have hundreds of so-called romantic orientations that all run in parallel to the sexualities. So you have lithsexual and you have lithromantic. You have asexual, you have aromantic. You have trisexual, you have triromantic. It's so stupid. Um, so they have endless categories, categories and categories and categories and categories. They have, if you get into the really weird stuff like xenogenders, which are, you know, pretending that your gender is like a dog or anything that's not male or female, actually, masculine or feminine, I should say. Um, anything outside and anything that's not traditionally seen as a gender or whatever, that's a xenogender. They have hierarchies. They have like space genders. There's, of course, they've come up with stupid words for these things. And then you could have with inside of space genders, there's like nebula genders, star genders. Within star genders, you could have like blue supergiant gender versus red supergiant gender versus like white dwarf gender. Like you think I'm making this up. Xenogenders. It's a thing. You can X. E-N-O, gender. You can look this up. It's a thing. And there are categories and categories. So they say that they're all against categories and categorization, but all they do is endlessly categorize in stupid and clownish ways that annoy everybody, not just the establishment. Um, and then fluidity becomes the rejection. The fluidity becomes the key that they can, you could be star gender today. You could be female tomorrow. The next thing you know, you could be a tiger. Why not? You're fluid. That's queerness. It's a, it has no essence. It changes. It's completely off in the head. But what, what they're actually, if you look at what they're really doing, they're actually reproduce. They're, they're 
picking some kind of a stereotype or a caricature and leaning way into it. That's rebellion. It's re- that's rebellion. And that's all they have to bring to the table. It's a sloppy, lazy, uncreative rebellion and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of alchemical words that don't that don't do anything except satisfy their egos and confuse people into not rejecting them outright like they should. So this isn't a productive product project, I should say. Uh, that's the big point. It's just clownery and protest with no positive vision. And then, of course, they think that this isn't popular, and they think that the reason is because people want to entrench power dynamics instead of the fact is that they're actually just not offering anything worth having. This is why, by the way, Vivek, or Vivek, I should say, I've got his name pronounced correctly now, Ramaswamy, who wrote Woke Incorporated, which you should read, is right that diluting their piss-poor values to irrelevance is a key component. He says it is the solution. I think it's only one part of the solution, but it's a very important part of the solution. We have to offer a positive vision of humanity and life, again, on, I hate to say it, but they, for the moment, they have to be offered on postmodern terms, that... Um, that that dilute all of this idiotic narcissistic protest uh people are are rebelling because they don't have something that they want to keep basically um but what what this results in is them predicting that people won't like this and saying well what this is is resistance because it's Remember, there's your protest. We've covered protest. In the other half, this is paranoia. Paranoia is the only main other thing they bring to the table. And so they believe that the entire system is rigged against them rather than the fact that maybe they're just wrong. Right? We can all picture Principal Skinner from the, the Simpsons at this moment. You know, you know, all the kids hate me or whatever. Maybe I'm the one making a mistake. No, it's the kids that are wrong. Um, but it's not. It's like the entire society, obviously, they think is wrong. Um, and this actually has been overcome and made their work as effective as it is now, partly because they've figured out how to basically do cult programming to get around the resistance. Starting in the 1970s, like we could read, for example, um, you know, Judith Katz uh, in 1978 wrote a book called White Awareness. It's a manual. It's really, it's like the second real diversity manual ever written for um, kind of professional settings. And if you read it, and maybe I'll read some of it to you on the podcast sometime. If you read it, you'll see that Robin D'Angelo basically stole a lot of this. Judith Katz, by the way, is the cited uh, the cited person who provided the material that became the infamous Smithsonian Museum, uh, African American uh, history, is whatever culture museum, um, whatever the words are for all of that. The upside down brown pyramids near the Washington Monument, which I just saw the other day in D.C. when I was there, uh, hideous building. Um, it's actually hideous. Uh, but point is um, that Judith Katz wrote this this book and over and over and over again. It's encountering resistance. What do you do? Encountering resistance. What do you do? Encountering resistance. What do you do? And so they know that people don't like to be called racist. <laughs> they know that people don't like to be accused of this, especially when it's not true. They know that people are going to reject their program. They don't understand why because they think it's the greatest thing and most important thing ever because they're in a cult. But they need you to be in the cult too. Robin D'Angelo, if you read White Awareness, it's overwhelmingly clear that Robin D'Angelo, even though she doesn't seem to cite Judith Katz anywhere, is familiar with the Judith Judith Katz approach. Robin D'Angelo's claim behind White Fragility, the paper and the book, the paper was 2011, if you haven't read it, the book 
based on that paper is 2018. Um, Robin D'Angelo very clearly was implementing a program extremely similar to the one advocated by Judith Katz, whether she knew that one specifically or not. And people were rejecting it. And she, white fragility was the tool, which is a Kafka trap. White fragility is the tool that she invented to overcome resistance. The whole point of white fragility is white people are going to resist this. And she talks about it over and over and over again in the book. She talks about it in herself and her, you know, weird confessional style. Uh, she also says that white people in general will resist. White fragility is the name that she gave to the idea of this resistance and how to overcome it is basically to accuse people of something unfalsifiable, namely white fragility. And that's what the whole point of her program is, uh, which unbelievable bestseller twice and has basically shaped the direction of an idiot nation that can't see through what they're looking at. So I'm just going to read one piece from her to give you an idea of this though. Um, their, their idea that, you know, it's going to be, this is the paranoia part against their, all they offer is protest based on the paranoid conspiracy theory about how society works. And then they have a further paranoid conspiracy theory that people are going to reject it for the wrong reasons because they want to stay entrenched in the benefit that they have. So here's what here's a piece from White Fragility. If you were reading this and you were still making your case for why you are different from other white people and why none of this applies to you, stop and take a breath. Now return to the questions above and keep working through them. To interrupt white fragility, we need to build our capacity to sustain the discomfort of not knowing, the discomfort of being racially unmoored, the discomfort of racial humility. Our next task is to understand the forces of racial socialization are constantly at play. The inability to acknowledge these forces inevitably leads to the resistance and defensiveness of white fragility. To increase the racial stamina that counters white fragility, we must reflect on the whole of our identities and our racial group identity in particular. For white people, this means first struggling with what it means to be white. Okay. This is a cult programming is what this is. What's happening is, and it's all contained in this paragraph, what's happening is vulnerability is being introduced into the situation. People are being accused of possibly being complicit in racism. They're getting stressed. She says, stop. In other words, listen to me and follow my instructions. Stop and take a breath. Now go back and try again. And then she says, you have this problem, white fragility, and you need to interrupt it. In order to interrupt it, so what she's done is she's now introduced vulnerability. If you remember my stages of of cult indoctrination when I first put out that wokeness is a cult right after George Floyd died and all this started to blow up, or maybe it was before George Floyd died. I don't even remember. It was last year, early in 2020 anyway, uh, early enough in 2020, long time ago, by today's reckonings, 3000 years ago. And uh, what I said was they induce vulnerability and they give a pathway out of vulnerability through doctrine. So here's your vulnerability. You're complicit in racism. Do you feel vulnerable? Follow my instructions. Go back. Do it again. Try to do it better. You have a disease. We're going to name your disease, white fragility. And here's the thing you can do in order to overcome it. Here's the path out through doctrine. We need to build your capacity to sustain your discomfort of not knowing. So, you, so you, if you you can build it, right, you can, you can become better. Keep practicing. Go back and do it again. The discomfort. You have to be able to learn to sit with the discomfort, blah, blah, blah. You have to learn to be more humble, accept more of what we're saying. Now, that's step one. Now, step two, you have to understand the forces of racial socialization are constantly at play. It's not totally your fault. See, now, all of a sudden, you have a pathway out of the moral responsibility 
you're a racist, but it's not your fault. Right? Forces of racial socialization are constantly at play. The doctrine is now giving a path out of the, the vulnerability with a series of tasks that you can actually perform so that you, this is a cult indoctrination. The inability to acknowledge these forces inevitably leads to the resistance and defensiveness of white fragility. So if you don't want to participate, that's because you have the disease. You're not really one of us. You're not doing it right. So the only way out is through cult doctrine. And D'Angelo is perfectly clear. Helen and I have been criticizing, Helen Pluckrose and I had criticized white fragility back to well before anybody was talking about it, before it was even a book, on the grounds that it only gives one way out, which is total agreement with the accusation and to humiliate yourself in the literal Puritan sense uh, before it. And then what? What does she say? Well, this is how you're going to increase your racial stamina to counter white fragility. You have this problem. You want out. There's only one way out, which is to acknowledge it. And now you need racial stamina. And how you're going to do that is by reflecting on things the way that we tell you to. First, struggling with what it means to be white. And so this is a cult indoctrination. That is how this thing has evolved. In the 60s, it was just a protest movement that offered protest and revolution. And that was all it offered. And what happened was they figured out how to build a cult indoctrination on it so the people are caught in this cult of destruction. But this still ties in with all that they offer. No positive vision. They have no positive vision. All they say is that if you're not in the program, then, you, then you're bad. The UFO cult does not know that the UFO is coming, but it believes it. And anything that it talks about has to feed back into that same idea. But this is where they break the entire thing down. Uh... They break down any possibility of meaningful resistance because white fragility is the idea that if you're defensive or reject it, that you're not doing it right. So what do they do? They turn you into somebody who needs to see that way and thus protest against everything even more. Reading from Awesome Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo's book, Is Everybody or Is Everyone Really Equal? Um, they write critical social justice considerations, defensiveness. Another dynamic in the scenario is the defensiveness that the students feel when the instructor points out the lack of diversity. This is where Robin D'Angelo got these crazy ideas. This defensiveness signals that the ideology of individualism has been challenged and our dominant groups. We are not socialized to see ourselves as group members, and it is common to take umbrage at the suggestion that this, this aspect of our identity matters. For example, to feel defensive at the suggestion that our race or class or gender is relevant to our life experiences. To point out the relevance of our group memberships is to challenge a privilege to which we often feel entitled, the privilege to see ourselves and be seen by others as individuals outside of social groups. This is a cult indoctrination, and the point is to turn people into people who believe that the system works this way so they'll want to protest against it because that's all they have to offer. Protest and paranoia. Protest and paranoia. That's all they have to offer. The student's defensiveness, they write, also indicates that they are coming from a good-bad binary. You don't think about things in a complicated enough way. The teacher has raised the issue of race, among other things, and implied that something is racially problematic about the demographics of the class. Unfortunately, the defensiveness indicates that they might not be as open to the discussion as they could be, and this makes it harder for the instructor to broach it. So now it's, it's a you rejecting this is a you problem. You not going along with the program is a you problem. You aren't as open because you're defensive. And if you were, we could discuss this and engage it better. And you're actually, as they say, holding up other people. They say the defensiveness also sends an unwelcoming message to anyone else in the room who may not want to engage construct, who may want to engage, sorry, constructively with the issue. 
Of course, we do not mean to imply that the defensiveness is not is not normal or temporary or that the students are not open to discussion at all, but defensiveness in this context is an indication of a dominant worldview, the thing you have to protest against, and it functions to protect that worldview rather than to expand it. So we have to indoctrinate you into the cult so that you'll want to protest against the dominant worldview. From a critical social justice perspective, defensiveness should be an indicator to us that we are falling into the good-bad binary or that some aspect of our dominant group position is being threatened. In this way, we can use our defensiveness as an entry point into deeper self-awareness. And that's how they cultivate more and more cult uh, commitment. Again and again, I've heard about people who've taken these, been forced through, I shouldn't say taken, these diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings who are then told to do something racial, to confess their racism, accuse somebody of racism, something like this. Usually confess their racism, talk about racism, blah, blah, blah. And then if they're asked to do it and they don't like it, they're then told to interrogate their own feelings of defensiveness and to use those as a signal that they need to go deeper, that they have white fragility or brown fragility, brown fragility, brown fragility people. And they, this is a moral extortion racket. And we heard from D'Angelo and White Fragility that it's arranged as a cult indoctrination tool. And the point of it is to make people want to protest against the very fabric of the society, the system of domination that they have been convinced that they've been complicit in, even though they weren't. And this is how you work around the fact that Marcuse, even though he's advocating for a total protest against the whole society, nobody is actually going to want that. The way you want that is by creating a cult. In fact, a societal destruction cult. And that's what we have on offer from Critical Theory is a civilization destruction cult. I don't know if it's a death cult specifically. It is a civilizational death cult. The civilization itself needs to die so it can be reborn from the perfect utopia that we can't envision that is contained within it. That is their thing. This is a completely closed loop of destruction built into a cult. That's what's actually happening. Protest is the only thing they have to offer. It's rooted in layers and layers and layers of paranoia. Paranoia originates it about how the society works. Paranoia protects it. The whole thing operates in this way. All it offers is protest. It offers no building. People will resist it because it's inherently destructive and people don't want to destroy something that's actually functioning. Remember, we're actually talking about well-functioning societies here. The conclusion is that the people who don't want this must be wrong because they're complicit in the system and they have to be brought into a cult-like indoctrination program capitalizes on feelings of defensiveness, that capitalizes on, on uh, vulnerabilities that's manufactured around these sensitive issues like bigotry, um, like unfairness, like injustice, like if you want inequity. And they offer the pathway out through the doctrine. This is the highly evolved mess that we're dealing with. But at the bottom is a program that offers nothing. All it does is makes worthless protesters who offer no positive vision. So it's zero surprise that when we put them into positions of power, which they agitate and protest for and then demand, all we see is collapse, failure, destruction, corruption. All we see is collapse. All we see is disrupt and dismantle, which is exactly what they want. They think that disrupt and dismantle is the precursor to reimagine and rebuild 
And that is literally all they have to offer. No positive vision, just if you give us power to tear down the problems that we see now at every level of governance or whatever it happens to be, then we'll usher in a better world. It's such a fascinating mindset. And it's scary when you break it down that it's actually taken over the entire Western world all at once. And that so many people have spent the last several years thinking exactly this way. Nothing positive to grip onto. What's the solution to that? Well, people don't want constant protest. People don't want constant revolution. But what they need is exactly the thing that this erodes. What they need is something they can believe in. What they need is a vision for a future that they actually want, that is actually incrementally based off of the existing system, that achieves it by cleaning up corruption. Right now, we are facing an immense amount of corruption. People like the system. They don't like the corruption. Uh, we have a situation in which... Um, I just lost my train of thought when I started talking about the amount of corruption we have. It's so staggering. But the truth is that the, the people are they are they are actually interested in creating a version of our society or recreating a version of our society that actually works, uh, peeling back no more than the corruption, than the uh, illegal behavior, than than the than the rot that most of which, much of which, not most, much of which has been brought in on the back of. Um, these critical theories, which offer nothing but but protest and destruction. So we don't want to disrupt and dismantle. What we do need to do, however, uh, is to articulate that vision for the future. We, we have to articulate values that people want to believe in, truth, not being constantly lied to, um, excellence, not corruption. Corruption is the opposite of excellence. Merit, and for example, is a result of excellence. If you have excellence ordering your society, as Jordan Peterson points out, that's one of the least, maybe the least form, probably the least form, uh, least corrupt form, I should say, I'm sorry, of creating a hierarchy. And so we, we have to be looking constantly for those values. I personally think that they start exactly where identity politics also starts. The answer starts where they start. Imagine, if you will, they were at a fork in a road. It's maybe 1970 or whatever. And there are two paths from that moment. It is the moment of identity politics. And we can either go one way or another. And what they they chose is we're going to fracture by identity. And the other path does not fracture by identity. And in fact, unifies by identity. It appeals to common humanity. As I've talked about in other venues, common sensibility, putting things on common ground, sharing a common currency, having a common basis of truth, having a common basis for communication, treating our, our social media platforms like common carriers, getting rid of repressive tolerance, getting rid of actual bigotry and exploitation as well to the degree that those exist, getting rid of corruption, putting things on common terms not using alchemical language that divorces words from their actual meaning. Those things actually are the solution, or at least the beginning of the solution. So that's the direction that we should point uh, our prow and set sail. 